What's that one thing that sparked in your brain that made you question everything? Why have over 100 members of Congress been able to outperform the stock market by 30% over the last two years? Why does the IRS legally require you to report every transaction over $600 when the Pentagon can't account for $220 billion in missing military gear? How does the US plan to pay $194 trillion in unfunded liabilities like Social Security and Medicare when the entire US GDP is only $23 trillion? The United States can pay any debt it has because we can always print money to do that. Why are you and I paying taxes when the government can just print money? And if the government can just print money, what even is money? What is money? And if governments can really just make it out of thin air, then why do they need ours? One of the big obstacles I find for Western people thinking about the idea of living on Bitcoin is that most people are fine with how our money works, even though it continually loses value and everybody knows it. People in different countries have very different relationships with money though and, and what it's supposed to do. And I, our guest this week is a Bitcoin content creator who travels the world documenting Bitcoin adoption. And he does it himself while living on a Bitcoin standard. He's turning his observations and experiences into video content like the one you just heard as a medium to help people understand these concepts and part of his journey in, in building content for this purpose he's learned a lot about connecting audiences to these ideas and in the process it's changed the way he's living his own life you're listening to the block reward the show where we help you understand bitcoin without having to be obsessed with it i'm scott deedles i'm the founder and ceo of block rewards and part of our mission in bringing bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how it will help them so if you're interested to learn something about how people in other parts of the world are thinking about Bitcoin and using it in their daily lives and how one specific person is doing it here in Canada, stick around. We're about to dive into it. Julian Figueroa is a filmmaker and the host of Kinetic Finance, a multi-platform video channel providing educational and historical explainers on money, markets, and a cutting-edge look into the world of Bitcoin. Since 2020, his content has amassed over 18 million views across YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. In addition to appreciating the self-sovereign movement that Bitcoin promotes, Julian also shares a passion for off-grid living, consistently learning about and engaging in carpentry, permaculture, and survivalism. Julian resides in Vancouver, and has been transitioning his own daily life to a Bitcoin standard. He's been traveling the world, documenting Bitcoin adoption, and has some fascinating insights from what he's seen on his adventures. I'm thrilled to have him on the show, and I hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Our guest this week is Julian Figueroa, filmmaker, Canadian Bitcoin filmmaker, educator, living life on a Bitcoin standard. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I don't want to give away like the exact time we're filming this, but I picked a red background because the price of Bitcoin's down. Finally, I'm actually happy about that. I think when you're into Bitcoin for long enough, you're actually happy when the price goes down. So what about red days make you happy as a Bitcoiner? You get more sats and the noise dies down a little bit. You know, I, I've been doing Bitcoin stuff since 2017. And I think when you first get into Bitcoin, you're very emotionally attached to like where the price is going. And you always use all these headlines to justify, oh, it's up because of X or it's down because of X. And you realize, you know, once you start to understand Bitcoin, you're appreciative of the days where it just goes down because you realize in the long term, it's just like a sale day, right? You go to the supermarket, you find, you know, your favorite food on sale. I uh, wake up and if Bitcoin's down, it's my favorite asset on sale. So you 
Well, I, I want to come back to that in a second. I Before we do that, I start every show with the same question. And that question is, what is Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin to me is the evolution of money. And I think money as a technology, as a concept, is something that we don't think about enough the same way that, you know, sometimes fish don't think about what water is to them. A lot of us, especially in the privileged, um, you know, first world countries don't think a lot about what money is. But for everyone else around the world, uh, the way that money is run, designed, operated, it is a massive part of their life. And it's a very detrimental part of their life sometimes, too, especially when it's run incorrectly. Bitcoin, to me, is the first form of money that fully removes the moral hazard of governments from our time and our energy and the way that we exchange it and coalescing around that in the 21st century and right now is I think one of the most important things that we as individuals can do to change society and everything else better. That was so beautifully said. And I one of the things you touched on there that I, I think is really worth expanding on just a little bit is this idea that technology is going to or has enabled us the ability to detach government from, you know, needing to be the 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 guarantor or the verifier of currency. Like that that was a something that was necessary for a time. And that's no longer the case. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tough because like I think pre-Bitcoin there were economists that talked about this. I think Hayek and Mises and, and some of these economists, they talked about, man, like, money will never really work until we figure out how to take it out of the hands of the government. And I forget what economists said. You can't do it directly. You have to do it through this sly roundabout way. And that quote has kind of taken off in the Bitcoin community. And that's sort of what Bitcoin is all about. When we think of all the narratives, especially you know in the last few weeks about everyone's so excited for this Bitcoin ETF, it's like a Trojan horse that's coming to Wall Street. They don't even know it. It's there to demonetize basically everything. Wall Street, which is built upon speculation to escape fiat degradation of money. The only reason that you invest and you diversify into like 20, 30 different things is you're looking for the best way to escape the melting ice cube that is fiat. If you fix the money, you destroy that industry. And yet they're all clamoring for the uh, you know release of a Bitcoin ETF now. And that'll be another thing that they add to their portfolios at some point. But yeah, when people say like that's that's the sly roundabout way of Bitcoin and that's the, the way that we remove moral hazard. I think that's kind of what they're talking about. It's a funny thing. I, I, I had a friend actually text me this morning who's actively trading stonks and asking me you about... stonks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. There was a, a pullback in the price of a lot of the major minor stocks that coincided with the, the launch of the ETFs. And may, maybe this is a, an, idea, an ideal place to scalp 10%. And it's like the, these all of these ideas are antiquated and I would say dead, but they just it's just people haven't haven't realized that yet because how slow it the idea that Bitcoin is so much more than something you can own, which I think takes a lot of the transition of, of like what you're doing with your daily life now, where Bitcoin moves from being a shiny, a shiny like digital rock to something you're, you're using in your daily life. Yeah, I mean. I used to be in that camp. Like I day traded for a while and that's actually how I made a lot of my income. So, I mean, like a little bit of my backstory, essentially how I got into Bitcoin and, and all these things like stocks is back in 2016, I was just graduating film school and I had maybe $3,000 left in the bank, excess money for my student loans. And I thought, well, you know, I should try and put it into something. And I it was around the time that like the Canadian marijuana stocks were a big thing before we had legalized it in Canada. And, you know, I heard some inkling about Bitcoin and Ethereum and all that. And I kind of just put it 
between those two things very speculatively. And obviously, when you finally put your money into something, you can become you know fully invested mentally in it as well as financially. And so I just went down this rabbit hole, like learning about you know the history of of finance, you know how financial products work, how stocks works, ETFs, these cryptocurrencies. Did well in that, and that essentially bought me you know, my freedom to build my own business. And I, I went further down this path of of trading and speculating and doing technical analysis. And I was decent at it for a while. I think it is one of those things that, you know, I don't recommend people learn how to take up trading, but it's programmatic in the same way that like you can become uh, an expert poker player, right? It's just about knowing your odds and controlling your emotions. But the reason that I got out of that and I started moving towards, I want to create Bitcoin content. And I I couldn't do both at the same time as I found this constant need for speculation, trying to figure out, you know, where my next paycheck comes from in the day trading market. It was just completely hampering my ability to creatively express myself because I'd always have in the back of my head, what is the next trade? You know, I'm waking up tomorrow at that, you know, 630 Pacific to, to figure out the markets or earlier sometimes, sometimes at five. And it was just draining my creative spirit away. And ultimately in the end, like, I'm not I'm not an engineer, I'm not a math person, I'm not a finance person deep down in here. I'm a I'm a pretty creative person. I like making movies, I used to make video games, art and stuff like that. And I just found that this constant need to speculate in order to create income or to feel, you know, like I had a safety net underneath me was just killing what my actual greatest strength was. And so eventually I just had to kind of just pull the plug on it and uh go basically into just long-term you know, saving in a Bitcoin. But yeah, I, I've gone down this road of going from like just treating Bitcoin as a very speculative asset to learning about the store value properties to really becoming idealistic about it as a technology for change in society to pursuing a, a career or venture and trying to explain that to other people as much as possible. And that journey has been, you know, it's been lots of ups and downs, but I'm, I think I finally arrived to a point now where I think I've figured out at least for me a way to explain Bitcoin to people in a way that I don't think many other people are yet through visual mediums, through going to different countries and seeing how it's used through talking with entrepreneurs and people who escaped hyperinflation and showing those stories in in film rather than just text. And I think when those stories start to come out, it's going to really change the narrative on Bitcoin and all the, you know, digi economist and all these, you know, news publications, which just throw out a bunch of stats about crypto bros and destroying the environment. All those narratives will hold nothing to the power of film, which will actually show people having their lives radically changed by Bitcoin. And so, yeah, that's that's where I am today. You are really fucking crushing it in terms of your ability to condense these ideas. I'm fascinated by your your short form videos. You do both. You've done some really cool longer ones. And I, and I kind of want to talk a, a little bit about both. But maybe let's start here with a little bit of a chat around sort of you were making content for a long time. And then you had, I think, one or, or a handful of shorter form videos like really catch fire. And can maybe talk a little bit about that experience and then maybe the insights of starting to sort of deconstruct maybe why what it was about the certain certain videos you did that that really resonated with a broader audience. Yeah, one thing about me is I'm a very analytical person. And so whenever you put something out into the world as an artist, you have to decide if, if you know, how much you're doing it for yourself versus how much you're doing it for other people. And there's a ratio, like maybe the video I'm making is 50% for me, 50% for the audience. Maybe it's like 100% for me and I don't give a shit what people think about it. Or maybe you produce stuff just because you want to see what other people think about it, or you're just trying to entertain people. And there's always this ratio of, of you know, 
it, it doesn't go on usually as explicitly as I'm saying it, but it's kind of always in the back of the head of, of artists when they're creating things. And I've always been a person that tries to strike a bit of a balance between these things. And so the way that I've, I've found that process to be enriching is to try different formats all the time. So when I first started making YouTube videos, my first YouTube video ever on Bitcoin stuff was about a week or two after Quadriga CX collapsed. For those who don't know what that is, that was the largest Canadian Bitcoin exchange for, I think, between 2013 and 2018. The founder mysteriously dies in India. Turns out he was just gambling everyone's funds on the platform. Learned a very expensive lesson and not your keys, not your coins there. But I used filmmaking and talking to cameras like a therapy to get over it because I was crushed. I lost so much capital through that. And I thought, okay, the only way I can really get through this is to just talk about it openly. And so I made a, a short video. It's just me blabbing the camera. Uh, didn't use any of my fancy film gear. And people really took to that and they thought, oh, you know, this guy seems authentic, you know, and it was nice to get that feedback. And I heard from other Quadriga users. And so from there, I kept just putting out different types of videos of, of things that you know, answers for questions that I once had when it came to learning about Bitcoin. And so those are kind of like mid-length videos, just me talking to camera sort of stuff. I've experimented doing some podcasts, interviewing people because I interview people all the time in my line of work, which is, you know, for a while it was producing corporate videos for public companies. So always talking to CEOs, I thought, well, let's talk to some Bitcoin people. Those got some good reactions. At one point I was doing like charting trading analysis, showing people like this is what I think the price of Bitcoin is going to do next week. And I'm always trying different things uh, that were of interest to me, but hopefully of interest to other people. And then I came really late to this game of, of making these short TikToks because that blew up in 2020 during the during the pandemic. And I kind of ignored it. I thought, oh, I hate vertical videos. You know, it's totally against all filmmaking to, to have everything basically flipped, you know, 90 degrees. And so I, I just ignored that format for super long. But I don't know what it was, but something eventually convinced me to download TikTok. And I realized everybody is here. Like this is where the party's been going on for the last two years and I've been missing the boat. And then I realized, wow, nobody's doing Bitcoin content in this medium or very, very few people are. And so I thought, okay, let's try this and see how this works. And it was okay for a while. The, the thing that kept me in it was every time I put out a video, it would get at least a thousand views, which was a lot nicer than you know some of the other stuff I was putting out. And eventually through just trial and error and, and working on my process and becoming a better speaker on camera, speaking more directly, working on my my script writing process, I think I got to a point where the scripts are really connecting with people. And I started more slowly integrating humor into it as well. And I think maybe you played a clip or you have a clip of one of my recent videos. And it's it's more so it's it's more all rhetorical questions than me trying to explain a concept in 60 seconds. I have a lot of these explainer videos where I'm just trying to explain an idea or a concept or a piece of history or debunk a myth in 60 seconds. And then every now and then I just say, let's get playful with the audience and, and just put something out there that'll start a conversation in the comment section. And those videos really, really blew up and I started integrating memes and stuff. And so, yeah, I think one of them got 6 million on Instagram. Another one got 4 million. I've had a couple do half a million on Twitter. So that's been going really well. Messing with that format. And I love it because when you're working in such a condensed format of 60 seconds, you have 170, 175 words to make a point. And so you can't rant 
everything's got to be concise to the syllable. And so it's this great challenge to kind of try and figure out, well, you can talk about a lot of things in 60 seconds, but you can't talk about everything. And so every every day I wake up and I browse my Twitter feed and I find, oh, this would be a good idea for short. And I write it down in this short pad. And then when I feel creatively inspired, I go to try and write these scripts. And sometimes I just cannot do these ideas in 60 seconds. And so I have a whole bunch of like half finished scripts that go a little bit longer. But every now and then I figure out ones that really work. And then I write them, film them on the same setup that I'm on right now. I pay editors to kind of put them together with the text and and graphics and memes and all that and put them out into the world. And yeah, it's been a blast uh, doing those. So yeah, it's uh, I have so many in store. And that's the other thing too, is I, I try and do them in batches. So whenever you see one come out, I, I try and post them Monday to Thursday. I usually have like eight that I've just finished that I'm holding. And that's just so that I can concentrate on other stuff and not have to film them every single week. But yeah. Yeah, I, I love one that I might be your, your most recent one. I mean, this will be a long time when this pod actually airs, but uh, it's the video you made about the Cobra effect. Yeah, yeah, that was so... Adam, um, Adam O'Brien and, and uh, Dave Bradley always share that story with me. And I thought, okay, well, this is a short in of itself. And that was a hard one to figure out. How do you explain that in 60 seconds and then also kind of have fun with it? Because it is, it is visual. The hardest thing about that was there's actually not really much verifiable evidence that any of that stuff actually happened. Like, okay, if this Cobra thing happened, like, where are the photos? Or like, somebody's written about it somewhere. And it's sort of just like a like a handmaid's tale. But I can believe it. I mean, it's it's just everywhere. And I think attaching it to Cobras is just like a cool visual. And so yeah, makes for a good short, I thought. Yeah, we, we won't attach that one too. But you can find it on Julian's YouTube page, which we'll have a link for in the show notes, if you're interested. Maybe some of your longer form stuff, you made a really cool video um, with that bunny called Do Kids Understand Bitcoin Better Than You? That's one of my favorite pieces you made. And I, I don't know if you premiered it at, at the uh, block party event in Vancouver, or if that was just Yeah, so that video was interesting because I'm always sort of on the lookout for cool things happening in Bitcoin. You know, we have podcasts, we have these books, and I'm always looking for like breakaway products or ideas that can try and get Bitcoin to mainstream audiences. And so this company um, called Shamari, it's like a small family business um, and uh, it's this couple and their kid and, and they're making kids products that teach Bitcoin. So I actually have some of them on my wall back here, um, but everything from, you know, little picture books to this memory card game. And I thought, wow, is this the real deal? Or is this just a Bitcoiner, you know, trying to trying to LARP? And why would kids care about money? And what do kids even think about money? And so I thought, okay, um, apparently this game basically covers most of the concepts of mining. So called up, you know, I, I didn't call up, but I made a Craigslist and Facebook post saying, hey, is there any like people who have like child models or child actors, we're going to do this social experiment to see if we can teach them about Bitcoin and all the evidence in place to show that adults don't know some of these really basic concepts. So I was like, okay, if I can teach them to a kid, then we can no longer, you know, excuse the politicians for mispronouncing, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto's name and and all this basic stuff. And yeah, so it, it worked pretty well. Like the kids love the game and they love the imagery of Satoshi as this monster that they've made up. It just goes to show you, like when we talk about Bitcoin, sometimes we get into all the technical stuff like nonces and transaction IDs and UTXOs and all this jargon lingo, what happened in 1971 and all that. But money is this foundational language that we don't teach children because we think their brains are too small and that all they they learn all this stuff as an adult maybe. And so 
we don't teach even high schoolers about taxation and rent and budgeting and, and some of this stuff sometimes. And so you go into the world as a, as a fresh adult at age 18, and you're so ill-equipped because everything around you is financialized, you know, from pay as you go to how you get your car to how you get your house. So you have to learn all these things on the go. Interest rates, you know, what is too high of an interest rate? all this stuff. And um, it's just baffling to me that, you know, we'll put kids through courses teaching them how to use like a graphing calculator and doing polynomial equations, but we won't teach them how to figure out, you know, interest payments and and like really applicable math in, in day-to-day life. And then on top of all that, a lot of us also export financial literacy to financial advisors and institutions and ETFs where it's just like, well, don't actually learn how the world of finance works. Don't learn what a balance sheet is. Give the money to a financial advisor. They've taken a course. They'll figure it out for you. And I don't think that you know we need to move to a world without financial advisors completely, but I think everybody should have some level of education and interest in this stuff because ultimately like the fruits of your labor most of the time is money until you find out how you want to allocate that money. It just sits there and it and it bleeds away based on whatever the inflation rate is where you live. So to see children coalesce around some of those concepts and Seb Bunny is one of the, you know, most prolific and just like well-spoken people on this stuff. And he's just so good at breaking down these concepts. Um, it made for a really fun sort of social experiment. And that's sort of the stuff that I like to make is I think, you know, putting people outside their comfort zone, like Seb Bunny had never taught these concepts to kids before. I I'm not I don't work with kids much in any of my lines of work, but see their curiosity to ask them like where does money come from and and see all the funny answers from the kids and to see that they actually do have a clue is awesome. And I think we need more of that and I think our politicians need to be more curious about this stuff as well rather than take it for a given. And yeah, every time I make a video, I, I try and focus on how can I kind of like change people's perspectives, but how can I leave them with a message that sort of resonates? And that's kind of what I hope came out of that one is that we need to be a lot more curious, just like children are about everything in the world. Do you have a favorite video of your own that you're most proud of or you, you like you look back on as your as your sort of personal top? Yeah, I do, actually. And I think I've, I've used this specific video as like a template of, of what I want to do moving forward. But it's the video where I check out Guatemala's uh, Bitcoin Lake. That was a really interesting one because essentially the, the, the premise for that video was you know, a year ago, I went to El Salvador. I did a little documentary. I went with my girlfriend to check out the country, spend Bitcoin, try and learn about the history and all that. And I started noticing in 2022, all these other circular economies were popping up. And one popped up right next door to El Salvador in Guatemala called Bitcoin Lake. And for that, I sort of just said, okay, I'm just going to take my camera down there. I, I messaged Adam O'Brien and asked if he wanted to come and he was down. And uh, we went down there. We got the full tour from Eliazar, who kind of runs the operation down there, interviewed him, went to these other local communities. And what really caught me off guard there is I was sort of expecting a very similar place to El Salvador. And El Salvador is this country kind of emerging from this big crime wave. And so you get a lot of things that don't make sense down there until you understand the history, which is people there don't really stay up, you know, past eight o'clock at night there. Like you go out and the streets are dead quiet after 8pm because the, the gangs used to be around all the time extorting people and doing some bad stuff. Guatemala is not quite like that. 
Guatemala also has a really rich Mayan culture I had no idea about either. Like 40 to 50% of the people there speak a Mayan language, not just Spanish. And so I go into this place looking to do a very similar story to the El Salvador one. Here's the circular economy. Here's how it works. I come out of that experience with two things. Number one, having a really interesting time collaborating with Adam as another video person and seeing how that drastically changed the outcome of the story and the narrative and how it became a lot more fun collaborating, but also taking away all these different cultural aspects and and having you know this imprinted upon myself and having Bitcoin basically being a vessel for understanding other cultures. I came down there for the Bitcoin. I left feeling really inspired about, about, you know, the Mayan way of life and why Mayans persevered through all the colonialism versus all the other, you know, countries around that didn't quite preserve that heritage. And that's sort of what the video became about by the end. And I tried to kind of loop Bitcoin into that as, as, as best I could. But that challenge and that surprise is really what has made that my favorite video. And that's sort of the type of stuff I want to do moving forward more of is going to these destinations, taking people on these journeys to different countries and cultures, using Bitcoin as like the lens and the reason that I go to these places, but then really diving deep and showing Bitcoiners and other people who are Bitcoin curious about, you know, these other cultures and how they've adopted Bitcoin, how they've used Bitcoin. And and the content now is using... Bitcoin sort of is the hook of my videos, but then taking them in very different directions in terms of the people that we meet and the communities that are forged. And the emphasis I'm hoping with these longer form videos now is sort of showing the myriad of people that are in the Bitcoin community, the adjacent themes and the adjacent lifestyles and and beliefs that a lot of Bitcoiners have when it comes to freedom, when it comes to, you know, bodily autonomy, when it comes to how we run our governments, when it comes to how we run our communities and our societies. And so, um, that to me is a lot more exciting uh, than anything else I can think of in the Bitcoin space uh, where it is. And I don't have a problem with, you know, podcasters and authors, but there's a lot of when it comes to the world of Bitcoin video and Bitcoin media, it's a lot of people in offices having conversations. And these conversations are great, but getting out in person and challenging yourself and, you know, from my favorite other YouTubers, Yes Theory, seeking that discomfort, um, I think makes for really, really fun and engaging storytelling. And I'm finding more and more that's what people are interested in. And it's a really great way to show Bitcoin to a brand new audience as well. Very cool. I definitely find, you know, up here in Canada, I think just generally in the West, there's there's a sort of baseline level of skepticism about Bitcoin because, you know, maybe we, we don't use it here in the way that communities in other parts of the world are. And uh, almost, you know, you have to see it to understand the scope of what's going on in places where the financial system is not as safe or regulated or dependable, where currencies work a lot worse than, you know, even worse than ours does. And uh, so you were just you were just down in in Central America again recently filming another video. Yeah, two documentaries, actually. I mean, that whole trip. Yeah. So this year, from beginning of November to kind of mid-December, I went with my dad, actually, to El Salvador, went to a conference there, did a road trip around El Salvador, which was really nice. Then Costa Rica did a documentary about Bitcoin Jungle, another circular economy down there, a mix of expats and locals, uh, very different from what's going on in El Salvador. Went to Dominican Republic just to try and get a week off and all that stuff. And then uh, down to Peru, where we did a documentary uh, that we completely crowdfunded, which was a, that's a whole other really interesting story about Bitcoin being used across these villages from the Andes mountains to the Amazon jungle, completely circular. So it's not just in El Salvador, sometimes they say circular economy, but a lot of the time it's like the tourists and the expats come in, 
They spend it at these businesses. The businesses usually cash out most of it. They don't pay their employees in it. When in Peru, everyone is paying for everything in Bitcoin and everyone is getting paid in Bitcoin in these communities. So the Bitcoin really moves in a loop. And it was all started by this nonprofit that is kind of leveraging that technology to help people find their sovereignty and to, to forge their own destiny and, and have them not be so reliant on government aid or other NGO support. Cool. So when, do, when does that documentary come out or both? Them. So the Costa Rica, the Bitcoin jungle one, I'm hoping for end of February. And then the um, the Peru one, I'm hoping end of March. The Peru documentary is the biggest project I've ever filmed by like a country mile. It was eight full days of filming, multiple cameras, a bunch of interviews in Spanish. And so the challenge there is that mi español no es muy bueno. I need to translate, you know, radically everything basically. And it's just not easy. So I have to work with an editor on that one to get the best parts of that out. But that's been a fun process too. So up to this point, everything I've done, I basically edited myself, uh, except for the shorts. And I'm trying to move away from that because editing is this like really grueling long process of taking hours and hours and hours worth of stuff and condensing it to 10 or 15 minutes. And the goal is eventually like, you know, I don't want to just do this as a hobby. Like I want to have this be financially supported either by the community, by sponsors, by some type of income generating prospect so that I can do this sustainably and more frequently. So the challenge now is just scaling that up to have other people come into the creative process and uh, help out. And so let's talk a little bit about your own journey of transitioning your life to living on a Bitcoin standard. And you had mentioned you're earning Bitcoin as part of your filmmaking. Tell us a little bit about that process and the the change of how it's changed the way you think about your own daily life. You, you live in Canada right now, right? Yeah. So 2023 was really a milestone, especially where I live in Vancouver for being able to live on a Bitcoin standard. But I'll kind of break it down from the beginning. I started making my I made my first videos in 2019, very casual hobby thing, 10% of my time, 90% of the other time was day trading or running my other video production business. 2020, I would say maybe 20% of my time was the YouTube channel, other 80% other income generating thing. 2021, Bitcoin to the moon, you know, sold some of that, made some more YouTube videos, slowed down my business, 30% of my time, 70% doing other things. 2022, bear market, had to start focusing back on my business. By the end of the year, I was like, screw this. Like, I want to do these YouTube videos and I want to teach people about Bitcoin. And I know it's a bear market and I know that everyone's getting scammed by FTX, but I want to tell these stories. So I shut my business down. Basically, it comes to a grinding halt. Maybe it takes up 10, 15% of my time now. And I flipped it where I'm now 80, 85% into doing these YouTube videos. The challenge is, is that I don't really make much income from them. So personally, um, I run ads on my YouTube channel. I'll get, if I'm lucky, 20 bucks a month on that stuff. So that's not going to pay my rent. At the end of a lot of videos, I put up QR codes so that people can donate to cover the cost of production. On average, every single one of those long form documentaries I've produced has cost me personally around $2,000 to $3,000. And that's in, that's not paying myself. That is just the labor and the flights and all the other stuff that goes into making those videos. So doing that while not having an income is, you know, kind of treacherous, but, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have savings to dip in to make that work. But as this kind of kept going on in 2023, where I was really ramping up the production, how many videos I was putting out, the amount I was spending on the videos, I was needing more and more support to kind of make them happen. And so trying to find sponsors to make this work meant that I would be going to these very Bitcoin aligned companies. And, you know, seeing as Bitcoin was pretty cheap. When I started doing this stuff really full time in 2023, I thought, let's just get paid in Bitcoin 
let's save, you know, whatever I don't spend on the video and then see where that goes. And obviously 2023 banner year for, for Bitcoin in that regard. The reason I did that was a lot of the time the videos involved me going down to Guatemala, going down to El Salvador, going down to Peru. So I was spending Bitcoin anyways. So if I was going to have a sponsor, it almost made more sense to get Bitcoin because otherwise I'd just have to buy it or transfer it out of my cold storage. But it's still a business expense, right? Uh, spending Bitcoin to buy a flight or spending Bitcoin to buy food or, or use it on camera. So I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to have sponsors, I'll just get them to pay me in Bitcoin direct. I'll just try and pay all the expenses in the video in Bitcoin. Contractors I worked for who were doing my shorts, I started paying them in Bitcoin. And then because, you know, otherwise they get scalped 5% on the credit card processing anyways, and they were down for the Bitcoin stuff. And then I started using Noster, which is like a decentralized social media platform where people can just send you Bitcoin by giving you a thumbs up. And I shared my shorts to Noster, ended up getting a whole bunch of Bitcoin donations through there. And I thought, okay, at this point, I'm spending Bitcoin to make my videos happen. I'm getting paid in Bitcoin to make the videos happen. And people are donating Bitcoin to me as basically my Patreon way of, you know, crowdfunding the videos as much as possible. Then I have this big idea to do this Peru project. And that one was the most expensive of all of them because that involved going down to Peru from Vancouver, which is not a short trip. Then we had to take about eight planes across the country to see all these different circular economies. And I could spend Bitcoin in all of them as well to get basic things like food or hotels and, and whatnot. And so in order to raise that money, I could go to a Kickstarter and start it. But I thought, well, the only people interested in, in funding this would probably just be Bitcoiners. And so Mike Peterson gave me the good idea of doing a thing called a geyser fund, which is basically like Kickstarter, but it's all done with Bitcoin. And so we did a geyser fund and we raised quarter of a Bitcoin as the budget for this film. And obviously that's done pretty well over the last three months in terms of fiat value. So that paid for everything that paid for my flights that paid for Isabella's flights, Valley's flights, everyone that was involved in the production, the cab drivers, we were just paying everybody in Bitcoin to do everything down there. And by the time that started to click in my head, I realized, hold on, maybe I should just start doing everything in Bitcoin <laughs> as much as possible just to keep things a little bit simpler. In Vancouver, we're lucky enough to have this great Bitcoin group of, you know, entrepreneurs, of just diehard Bitcoiners, of builders, even, you know, Will, who does Nosters around here. And more specifically, we have this company called CoinOS, which is sort of like a merchant square, uh, like wallet for merchants to accept Bitcoin locally. They've been on a rampage in Vancouver. They've, they've, they've onboarded 60 plus businesses. And, you know, it's cute when like a cafe accepts Bitcoin, but they started going beyond just like, oh, cafe or restaurant accepts Bitcoin. Butchers were accepting Bitcoin and barbers. And I just thought, why don't I just try doing everything on Bitcoin? I can pretty much do it in Vancouver. And then you have these services like BitRefill or Coin Cards where you can just buy gift cards for, you know, things that are a little harder to spend Bitcoin on like Uber rides. And so I've just pivoted as much as I can into just spending Bitcoin just because it's easier because the alternative is get paid in fiat, which is difficult sometimes depending on like what companies you're working with. If I'm working with an overseas company, again, you know, I send them a credit card invoice. Maybe they don't have a credit card. They can't ACH wire transfer to me if they're in Europe or, you know, they can't interact e-transfer me if they're outside Canada. You start operating on the Bitcoin standard and then you just find places to spend it and everything becomes pretty unified and you can work with anyone from any place and you get the added bonus of all your purchasing power over you know a year or two actually increasing with any savings that you accrue in the same time so 
yeah, it to me, it became a no brainer. I don't think it's for everyone. There's a lot of technical hassle if you want to get into that. But to me, it's so been worth it over the last three months. And the next step for me is, you know, convincing my landlord and everyone else to to start accepting Bitcoin that I, I work with normally. So let's talk a little bit about the, the technicality of how you might even do that as a person. Like what are the things that, that you've had to incorporate into your daily life now just to to make it make sense? How, how do you keep track of it all? It's tough. I have a sheet where I calculate all the income. The hardest one to track is the zaps, like the donations, because they'll just come in in really tiny fragments. Like I'll get spammed with like 21 stats, which is like less than a penny, right? And so, sorry, like CRA or IRS, like I'm not tracking, you know, when I get a penny donation and I don't think they they care either. But I do my best to calculate anything that's of significance, anything that I'm going to spend at some point. Tools like CoinOS actually tell you the cost basis of when you make a transaction. So if I spend Bitcoin somewhere, it tells me this is the price of the Bitcoin. This was the dollar value at the time of purchase. When you send Bitcoin to that wallet as well, it tells you this is how much in dollars you were sent at that time. So you can use the cost basis there to kind of figure out, you know, the fiat equivalent of the expenditures that you have. And that's kind of the biggest tool is like you need to have a good wallet that tracks everything that you do. The other big thing now is nothing is really done on chain. If I want to send even anything less than $2,000 is done through Lightning, basically. So if I'm paying contractors at this point now, I'm trying to get them set up with Lightning wallets, not on-chain wallets so that they can just take payment. It's instant. There's no fee. And when you go to merchants too, it's the same deal. And that's kind of the reason that they love using it as well is that, you know, they can accept the payment from you in Bitcoin. There's no 2% or 5% or 10%, no matter where you are in the world. So a good lightning wallet that helps you move from on-chain to lightning and, and vice versa is, is important. Something that helps you track your cost basis in fiat is really important. And then uh, ultimately just knowledge of where to get everything else that you need, like the gift cards and tools like btcmap.org, where you can just find where all the local merchants that accept Bitcoin are around you. And then just obviously just knowing the ins and outs. Anyone who, who you know, you need to pay for whatever if they accept Bitcoin, go with them. What is your Lightning wallet of choice? I move around, but I've been using CoinOS a lot. The reason I like CoinOS is because it's web-based. So whatever happens to my phone, my device, it's a username password. I sign up on there. My Bitcoin's in there. It's so ubiquitous. I used to frown upon that idea of like, oh, there's no app to download. Like you just go to a website and all your Bitcoin's on it. Like that's sketch. But, you know, within reason, like they, they call them wallets for a reason. You don't walk around with, you know, your, your day wallet carrying thousands of dollars. You fill it up with the cash as needed and you spend it. And then you go to the ATM, you withdraw and you, you go like that. Like, I mean, now everyone thinks on debit or credit, but back in the day when people didn't use debit and credit for everything, that's how wallets for treated you you fill it up with the amount that is good enough for a day of purchases you don't keep your life savings in your wallet and so i treat the lightning wallets like coinos much in the same way that's such a good point because i think and and you know taking a step back even further to what you were talking about on-chain transactions for less than two thousand like it seems like there's really an evolving understanding of kind of what's going to be a, a base layer Bitcoin transaction and then what everything else will, will happen lightning or you know, other other sort of side chains and these things will sort of solve themselves the the fee conversation has been really sort of dominating the bitcoin conversation for a few months now because fees have spiked you know abnormally high i guess for the amount of bitcoin price action that's been going on but have you noticed like personal change in the way you're living your life as a result of making these changes like maybe beyond sort of where you choose to shop and spend your money but how you spend your money or the way you look at it yeah i used to be the cheapest guy and i think in some aspects i still am in the sense that i will always buy the the 40 dollar payless shoes before the 300 dollar Arcteric shoes and 
I'll always buy, you know, the winners or the old Navy jeans and hoodies for 20 bucks versus the, you know, really well, you know, sewn in Italy stuff. And I've changed that. I've been buying a lot more high quality clothing, jackets, products, and not just because something costs more doesn't mean that it's high quality, but I've been doing my research to try and, and I'd rather spend a thousand dollars on something that's going to last 10 years than a hundred dollars every year for 10 years on the same thing. Even though it's the same amount of money, it's just less hassle. It's less waste. And usually in the end too, some of these more expensive products, like they'll, they'll still be a better thing investment than buying 10 of something over, you know, a time frame that always break. So it's changed my time preference a lot, I think. And, and I guess the reason with that is when you talk about Bitcoin, every time you purchase something with Bitcoin, you live to regret it a little bit if the price of Bitcoin goes up. And especially if you purchase something that just ends up going into the trash, right? Some of the most like painful Bitcoin purchases, because I did some research on, okay, back in 2010, go to the Bitcoin talk.org message boards, like what were people buying and selling with Bitcoin? They were buying and selling graphics cards because they wanted to mine it. So they thought, okay, the best thing I can do to spend my Bitcoin is to buy these graphics cards. And some of those guys made it out alive where you'd spend like 10, 20 Bitcoin on like a graphics card, and maybe you'd mine that much Bitcoin in return and, and pay for itself. But other times, uh, you just end up with like a hunk of metal and you never get back your initial investment. When I go out and I spend, you know, 500 bucks on, on Bitcoin on something that I really like, and then the price of Bitcoin goes up and then it's worth $1,000, I don't regret it as much because that that thing that I bought is really, really high quality. And there is like a lost opportunity cost. You can always look at it like that. But, you know, if I have something that lasts me through the next like two or three halvings, I'm happy with it. And I needed it at the time and I needed to spend Bitcoin to get it because I'm not dealing with fiat income as much. And I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with spending Bitcoin frivolously on, on you know, random junk that I don't need. And I think that's essentially how Bitcoin inspires you to be a better consumer because you just don't want to live those regrets of spending your deflationary money on junk that doesn't really exist a year from now. Have you found that earning Bitcoin makes it easier to spend Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You're just dealing with one unit of account, you know, as much as possible. And so the idea of like, maybe to just expand on a little bit further, when you're psychologically earning a currency that does fluctuate in price, do you have to budget in your in your own daily life for like the possibility that what you just earned might be worth 20% less by the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, though, is over a long enough duration that volatility cuts both ways. Like generally, as I earn Bitcoin, I'm spending it right away. So maybe I earn Bitcoin one day and then we have a, a God candle that destroys the price 10K down in one day. But I mean, like, when's the last time that you've seen Bitcoin drop 20% or even rise 20% over a day? It doesn't happen often. It's like a once or twice a year thing. And so if I'm caught in the middle of that on a transaction, you know, big whoop, it's not it's not the end of the world. Generally, if I get paid in Bitcoin, I'm going to spend it two or three days later on something. Maybe the price moves like two or 3%. I just made a short about this. If you look at the volatility of Bitcoin, now maybe it's changed because the volatility was really low for most of 2023 until October. The volatility of Bitcoin was less than the volatility of gas at the pump, right? We buy that stuff regardless. I know that there's people out there watching this video who have like tried to time when they buy gas because they've looked at like the oil charts or something. Oh, maybe I'll wait till next week. There's a, a big event happening. Or, you know, they'll hear a war breaks out in Israel and they're like, shit, I should fill up my, my gas tank because the price of oil is going to go up. People time the price of gas, right? In their day-to-day -day life. So it's not like you can escape volatility from even the most essential things. And so I just treat Bitcoin the same way. Bitcoin's less volatile than gas. It's more volatile than gold and the dollar, but it's not going to kill me. In the end, I earn it and I have to spend it. And better that than the Argentinian peso and 
again, long enough time preference, like as a savings tool, it's unbeatable. So the day-to-day fluctuations get offset by the long-term savings that are always appreciating. That's so cool. It makes me think just sort of on a bigger level about this idea of like, you know, thinking about the role that money plays in your life. And so you've just spent all this time traveling all these different countries. And is there something different about the way those people in those countries in Central America or South America, the way they think about money that has maybe socially enabled them to onboard Bitcoin in a different way? If you could make a a sort of sociocultural assessment of is there is there a factor or a commonality that that might make people more open to it? Yeah, there's two things and I'll try and break them down. One of them is that savings culture doesn't really exist in a lot of these countries. So there's no conversation around the dinner table with friends about, oh, what did you put in your 401k? Or, oh, you know, should I should I buy an apartment and start an Airbnb? Like you have these conversations. We have these conversations with our friends and family. Doesn't happen down there. Uh, Very rarely, maybe on the, you know, the top 2% of the population down there. Otherwise people, whatever they get, they spend. And if they don't spend it because so many people work in informal economies, they have their own business. They just put it back in the business. They just buy more inventory. I heard this thing in Argentina because of the inflation there. What people would do is they would take their money and they just buy bricks and they just build new levels on their house, basically reinvesting into real estate through physical bricks. Yeah. Add another floor, add another room. So that savings culture that we have in terms of like, oh, what should we invest in financial advice doesn't exist down there. So when you talk about Bitcoin to them, not to them, but like when you talk about Bitcoin in general in these countries, they're more interested in it as a medium of exchange because that's where they have real problems dealing with, you know, credit card access, dealing with bank account access. And when you say, hey, here's a decentralized bank account that the government can't steal from, that the government can't stop purchases from, they say, oh, okay. That's cool. That sounds pretty useful to my life. Oh, yeah. Also, tourists come down here and uh, they'll spend it at your business because you're taking Bitcoin. Great. Why would I not accept it at that point? So it's it's really a no brainer for a lot of these countries uh, because it's just it's a superior medium, medium of exchange and there's no barrier to entry for it for them. The other aspect I think that makes some of these cultures different is that a lot of the reason I think that we have skepticism on anything up here, whether it's Bitcoin, politics, you know, science is because of our access to the internet and the way that we consume media and information up here in Canada or the U S like we're just consuming media all the time. And our opinions are being shaped a lot more by people that we don't know at all in person versus our close friends and family. When you start going to these, these cultures and these other countries, family and close community is everything. And so when ideas and beliefs and worldviews are, are formed, if there are such a thing as worldviews in some of these smaller places, they're, mostly influenced by local community, not the internet. My opinion about Bitcoin has been formed by the internet. Your opinion on Bitcoin has been informed by the internet. Your opinion on money has likely been formed because of the internet, because of articles you've read, because of podcasts you've listened to. When it comes to any other subject, it's usually who formed it, the internet, or maybe you had a mentor growing up, right? In these communities, they're not sitting browsing the web and, and like learning about all this stuff 24-7. They have the same tools, but that's just not how the cultures work. It's a lot of dinner table conversations, and it's a lot of hanging out with friends and talking about these things in person. And so I think that leads to a culture of open-mindedness a little bit more because you're not constantly bombarded by this like information or misinformation machine that is the World Wide Web. You're trusting people around you who have formed opinions on something and how they've formed them, I don't know. But 
when people have belief systems, especially in those countries, especially in the poorer regions, I think it mainly just comes from local community versus, you know, the omniscient internet. That's such a funny observation to make because it, 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 it makes me want to reverse that and think about how in our culture, we almost have the opposite effect of like, if someone wants to give you advice about something in person, immediately sort of the guardrails tend to go up and like Bitcoin's such a great example. Start talking about, you know, un, uninvited Bitcoin conversations at a dinner party and like you've got a table of like, people looking at you like you have just grown a second head out of your neck <laughs> and uh well there's no trust i mean that's the problem like where we live like no one trusts each other <laughs> so what's this guy at the table like telling me he's like i'm gonna go home and like look up this stuff you know people don't feel that way down in those those countries in like south america latin america you have to earn the trust but once you've earned it in a community people listen Right. So there's this kind of like funny intersection where this same thing that causes us to shape our worldviews in a, in a certain way is also your primary mechanism to help disseminate information and shape people's views. Yeah, it's kind of ironic. Like I've actually had a lot more success, you know, orange pilling over the Internet than I ever have in person. I wish I was really good at orange pe- pilling people in person, but it always devolves into like, you got to look it up. You got to watch one of my videos anyways. So <laughs> Yeah, no, orange peeling people in person, I've found my personal experiences, degree of difficulty, extremely high. It is, yeah, it's a, a right place at the right time thing, and it, and it doesn't happen very often. So if people want to find more of your stuff, we'll, we'll have all the links, but uh, is there anywhere we could point people to specifically, you know, websites or? Yeah, you can find me on YouTube, uh, Kinetic, like Kinetic Energy, Finance, Kinetic Finance on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And yeah, like I do a bunch of stuff. I do the 60 second shorts, very easy to send to a friend, repost on your Instagram story, Twitter, whatever. I do these longer form videos, less frequent, once every two, three months, hoping to get them up to once a month at some point. And then uh, everything in between. And there's a lot of exciting stuff uh, I'm working on with some other people coming in the new year as well. Yeah, looking forward to it. Cool. I will highly recommend for anyone who's listening to, to check out some of those. And the the great thing about the, the shorter ones is... Uh, they're like a gateway to the longer ones. It's a great way to get people uh, interested to learn more. Julian, thanks so much for coming on the show. I am a huge fan of what you're doing and appreciate you taking the time to share some of your story with our listeners. Well, thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's always a blast talking about Bitcoin and sharing all this stuff. Looking forward to hanging out again soon sometime. You got to come down to Vancouver. Definitely. It's on my my short list for the, for the near term in, uh, in uh, 2024. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits, supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies, and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. 
The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening.